We'll get ready and get started. As you find your places, go ahead and find your Bibles. Open it to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 through 13. We have been doing a systematic study through the book of 1 Corinthians. And we are dealing with the overarching theme through the book on the power of community, the importance of the community of believers in a church, and how we need to emphasize that in our lives and our decision-making process over ourselves as individuals. The problem in Christianity today is that far too frequently Christians become selfish, self-centered. They make all their decisions based on me, and they don't consider everybody else in the body and Jesus Christ didn't die just for you. He died for a body, for a bride. And he did that so that we would be united. And uh, so we're dealing with these issues. There's a lot of personal relationship issues we've dealt with coming through these first four and into the fifth chapter. And today we're going to deal with the subject of biblical separation. And I want to tell you that's kind of a problem in churches today, biblical separation. There's people who just can't seem to figure out how to behave biblically. And we're going to look at it in a couple different aspects. We're going to look at it, how we should be separated corporately as well as individually. Uh, there actually is a gross misrepresentation of what separation really is or what it actually should be. If you were with us last week in our study, in the middle of chapter 5, we saw that God emphasized to us that we need to remove the leaven from our lives and that leaven is defined in the scripture as the doctrine and the practice of the Pharisees it's legalism it's hypocrisy and if you want more info on that just go to the website and listen to that message but the Pharisees we know are the worst possible example of people trying to carry out biblical separation right they did it exactly backwards they did everything wrong they avoided all contact with anybody that they would deem to be less holy than themselves. All the while judging everybody else who wasn't as good as them, well, in their own view anyway. You think that sounds crazy? Well, do you remember the story in Luke 18 where it says the Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself? Prayed with himself, by the way. God, I thank thee that I'm not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican, looking down their nose, holier than thou, always feeling superior to everybody else and therefore not allowing themselves to be contaminated with all the sinful behavior of everybody else that isn't as good as them. Legalism. And at the end of the day, Jesus points out their hypocrisy. You know, there's no shortage of people that do the exact same thing today. Typically, we call such people fundamentalists now they might be baptist they might be of some other group but if you're a fundamentalist you believe in the fundamentals uh, literally but really the way that plays out is you are in danger of falling into this trap many such fundamentalists by the way you need to know they carry the right bibles they believe the right doctrine they're active in ministry and they're even sincere but for some reason, they can't seem to grow a healthy ministry. Why is that? Because their legalism and their hypocrisy chokes the life out of people. And their members with that legalism just can't grow. 
They become the modern-day Pharisees that strain at a gnat and swallow a camel. So in this continuing narrative, as we're studying in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, what we see is this issue of church discipline. At the beginning of chapter 5, there was some very grotesque sin that was identified in the church and, and the Phariseeism that comes with it. And God wants to teach us, as we wrap up this chapter, about this issue of biblical separation. We need to learn. We need to understand. We need to know how to apply what God says corporately, which is more specifically the context of 1 Corinthians 5, but most certainly and also individually. And that's what we're going to see. Now, this is important because when you refuse to obey the biblical mandate of genuine separation individually, when you as an individual don't do what God asks you to do, right, what you actually do is you hinder God's ability to carry out his plan in the lives of many, many other people. And that's exactly what the Pharisees did. And Jesus addresses it directly in Matthew 23 and verse 13, where he says, But woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, what do they do? For ye shut up the kingdom of heaven against men. For ye neither go in yourselves, neither suffer ye them that are entering to go in. They were just standing in the doorway blocking the way. That's what they were doing. Man, nobody wants to be a part of that crowd. Nobody wants to be accused of that. Nobody wants to stand in front of the Lord in the last day and find out that with all your well-intending fundamentalism, you actually hindered people from entering the kingdom. Nobody wants that. So let's learn how to do it right. What do you say? I'm going to read starting in verse number 9. We're going to go to the end of the chapter, and then we're going to pray. Let's just follow along. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 9. I wrote unto you in an epistle not to company with fornicators, yet not altogether with the fornicators of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or with idolaters, for then must ye needs go out of the world. But now I have written unto you not to keep company if any man that is called a brother be a fornicator or covetous or an idolater or a railer or a drunkard or an extortioner with such an one know not to eat. For what have I to do to judge them also that are without? Do not ye judge them that are within, but them that are without God judgeth. Therefore, put away from among yourselves that wicked person. Let's pray, and we will see how the Lord breaks this down. Heavenly Father, I do pray as we look into this passage of Scripture, as you help us compare Scripture with Scripture, as you give definition, that we would be submissive to your Spirit being our teacher. And I pray as we look at this issue that you would give to us the proper balance. It's actually not that hard to understand, but sometimes we find it's not so easy to apply. So I do pray, Lord, that with proper biblical separation, you would keep your church pure while still keeping us compassionate to reach other people who desperately need to know you. Lord, we can only do this in the power of your Holy Spirit, so we ask you to come and to fill us and to teach us, and we pray in your name. Amen. Okay, the first point, and this is a very important point as we start off in verses 9 and 10, and it is this. We need to learn the separation from the influences, not the individuals of the world. The thing that you need to be separate from is not the individual human beings of this planet. 
You need to be separate from their evil influences where they exist. It starts off in verse number 9 where Paul says, I wrote unto you in an epistle not to company with fornicators. That means that Paul wrote a letter to the Corinthians prior to what we know as 1 Corinthians. Uh, Was it not inspired? I don't really know. It for sure was not preserved for us, right? We know that. Listen, Paul wrote a lot of letters. Paul had a lot to say, and God gave us exactly what we need. In fact, in that first letter, we have no idea what he said, and it shouldn't even bother you that you have no idea what he said, because the part that you need to know, he repeats in this letter. And the part that you need to know is, is that when he referred to it before, he said, hey, listen, I told you, don't keep company with people who are fornicators. Now, the fact that he had to repeat that is almost embarrassing. I mean, I think we should get that, right? I mean, that should be a fairly obvious thing to understand. But just for the sake of definition, you should understand that the word company is the same word from which we get companion. The idea of making friends, the idea of having fellowship together with. You should not companion, you should not have these fornicators as your companions. They should not be your friends. They should not be the people you're fellowshipping with. Well, why is that? Well, because like begats like. You don't want to be one too, right? I mean, we have an expression in Albanian, it rhymes and it sounds cool in Albanian. So there's some people in Albania that actually watch this, so I said that in that language. Okay, so the statement, what it means is that you tell me who you hang with and I'll tell you what kind of person you are. That's what it means. It's a really cool, I mean, it's a proverb, it's an idea. The idea is this, who do you company with? Uh, You, Christian, shouldn't company with people who are involved in this kind of behavior. But Paul now has to clarify, because obviously they didn't fully understand what he meant. They got sucked into some Phariseeism, see? And then he goes in verse number 10, and he says, yet not all together with the fornicators of this world. In other words, I'm not telling you that you are to avoid everybody categorically right he says because if you did that it says for then must ye needs go out of the world in other words these cats are everywhere man i mean if we did that who would be left right so there's this misunderstanding they actually thought that it meant avoid all the lost people well that's impossible i mean you couldn't do that if you wanted to Y'all got a job? (laughs) Uh, Do you realize what kind of people work around you? Do you realize the kind of things that they think and do when you're not around them? Listen, man, they're everywhere, right? These are the people of the world. And he gives us a list. And the list is fairly obvious. We're not going to spend a lot of time, but he says fornicators. Okay, that's the lust of the flesh. He says the covetous. Well, that's the lust of the eyes, right? You're greedy of some level of personal gain. And then he goes on with extortioners. Extortioners, well, that's really the pride of life, isn't it? Because while extortion is a form of covetousness, I want something from you, and you're not giving it to me. So I'm going to leverage some amount of force to require you to give to me by force what you refuse to give to me freely. So when you can't achieve what it is, get what you want, 
You're going to bring in all kinds of other evil behavior to try and uh, leverage against that person if they don't give you what they want. That's, that's the pride of life. And then it says idolaters. Well, that's the first commandment. You'll have no other gods before me. And in Colossians chapter 3 and verse number 5, covetousness is called idolatry. In fact, idolatry could be argued to be the catch-all sin that covers all other sins because any other thing that you have going on in your life that is between you and God, by definition, is another God before the real God, right? So these are the issues of the people of this world. Now, to be fair, you should compare, your mind may go to 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 to 17. And in 2 Corinthians 6, chapter, uh, chapter 6, verse 14 to 17, it says that we're not to be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. And the comparisons are very clear. You know, the righteousness with unrighteousness, what do they have to do with each other? Light with darkness, what do they have to do with each other? Jesus and the devil, what do they have to do with each other? A believer and an unbeliever, what do they have to do with each other? In other words, all of these things that we see in this thing, be not equally, unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Well, what does it mean to be yoked? Well, to be yoked together literally is to be joined together in a significant way. Uh, we use this scripture to encourage young, single Christian adults to not marry unbelievers uh, because to be married with a person is to be connected in a very significant way Amen. and you don't want to yoke yourself together with somebody who does not have Christ as their savior and therefore the same worldview and value system at the end of the day authority for their life but it's not limited just to that because at the end of the day the word yoke comes from working oxen in the field they're yoked together so you might want to consider your business partnerships. Any kind of a significant connection that connects you to somebody else. I'm not saying you work on an assembly line next to a guy. I'm saying you enter into a significant partnership with somebody who's an unbeliever. Well, that's a real challenge. That's something you need to be aware of. Why is that? Well, it's the reason that we made the first point of this sermon. It's so that you are not influenced by their sin, right? You need to separate yourself from their influences but not the individuals not the individuals and that's not what he's saying you say how do you know that Jeff well I know that because the world is our target audience amen I mean that's what we're commanded to do this world is in a heap of trouble y'all second Corinthians 4 and verse 4 in whom the God of this world small g that's the devil hath blinded the minds of them which believe not lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ who is the image of God should shine unto them but God so loved the world, John 3, 16, right? That he gave his only begotten son. Whosoever believeth on him should not perish, but have everlasting life. God loved the world enough to send us to go be a light unto the world. Philippians 2, 15, that ye, church, may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation. You don't avoid them. You don't hide from them. You're in the midst of them, Right? among whom ye shine as lights in the world, lights to those who are living in darkness because they've been blinded in their minds by the devil that the light of the gospel shouldn't make it unto them. And of course the Great Commission says, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. The world is our target audience. How foolish to think 
We avoid all contact with the world. As a result, you can't even do what God says for you to do if you do that. I know that it's true because they're our target audience. I know that it's true because Jesus prayed that we are to be in this world, but not of it. We are to be in the world, but not of it. This is Jesus' prayer in the garden before his crucifixion, John 17, 15. He prays to the Father, I pray not that thou, Father, shouldest take them, the disciples, out of the world. Don't take them out of the world. That's what we see in 1 Corinthians 5, 9. But that thou shouldest keep them from the evil, the influences, right? They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them, rather, through thy truth. Thy word is truth. So protect them from the evil influences. Keep them holy through thy truth of the word of God. They are in this world. We are in this world, but we should not be of this world. That's the idea. And in case you are not aware of Jesus' high priestly prayer in John chapter 17 and 15, 16, and 17, you might want to glance down to verse 20 because you really will be encouraged by this, where Jesus Christ says, Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word. Jesus Christ in the garden prayed for you. He prayed for me. And he prayed for us this very thing he prayed for them. He prayed that we would be in this world as salt and light, but we would not be of this world, that we would influence others, that others would not influence us. But it's a, it's a tough balance. You've got to be careful. Because by so doing, by reaching out to such people, there's the danger, there's the risk that that evil influence will get to you. So you have to do what you can do to walk with the Lord and stay clean and influence them. It's a challenge. It is. It's a real challenge. People blow it all the time. So how can you do it right? Well, you can successfully balance this by having a strong community of believers. And that's what 1 Corinthians is all about. We need one another. We need the help and the encouragement that we offer to one another. Everybody needs everybody else. If you're a part of this church and you're not involved in anything, that's bad for you. It's bad for us. The body needs all of the members to be functioning in health. We need you to do what you are uniquely gifted and shaped to be able to do. And you need it too. We are created to live in community. We are created to do this together. And a faithful, loving church family will encourage you to continue to go out and to reach the lost. They will pray and help you to keep from getting influenced by the world. And should you find yourself beginning to stumble, they will lovingly hold you accountable and help bring you back from falling too far out. If you, I don't know how people make it even people who call themselves Christians, without the community of the church. Because the danger, if you're not a part of the church and you're not plugged in and you don't have this balance and this help, the danger is, is you risk falling into the trap of being a legalistic Pharisee. You're going to be one of those church members that just sits in the back and doesn't ever do anything and just observes and watches what everybody else does and sharpens your pencil to write down what everybody else is doing wrong. Pharisee. Listen, man, the people who are busy helping get the work done don't have time to look over their shoulder and judge everybody else. We're busy getting it done. You see a need, go fill that need. Just talk about why I'm not filling it. 
I mean, this is what happens. This is a real problem, and the Corinthians had this problem. Listen, there is a problem of legalistic separation, the doctrine and the practice of the Pharisees. And what it turns into in our modern day and time is what I call isolationist mentality. Christian people are funny. I mean, Christian people these days seem to think that the answer to evil is create all of your own environments. I mean, for all of life's activities so that hopefully you and your kids never have to interact with the world. I mean, if you can find a Christian daycare and if you can find a Christian preschool and if you can send your kids to Christian schools and Christian universities and then they can get Christian jobs with Christian companies that make Christian products, whatever that is, (laughs) and you eat Christian food grown in Christian farms that has been pre-blessed, I don't know. You go on Christian cruises and Christian vacations and you have Christian activities and you make Christian sports leagues and let me just tell you something. The more you get involved in that kind of junk, you run into some of the most legalistic, carnal, vile people you've ever met in your whole life. Are all any of those particular things evil? Of course not. The mentality that we have to live our lives in a Christian bubble is not biblical. It's not biblical. You're trying with good motives to protect yourselves from the evil influences of the world by abstaining from its people. And that's not the way you do it. The way you keep yourself from being stained by the world is by being sanctified by his word. That's how. That's how he said to do it. And so people that do that are frustrated. And they're frustrated because it doesn't work. How did Jesus do it? Well, he did it right. Remember the case of Zacchaeus? Luke chapter 19, Jesus entered, passed through Jericho. Behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus, which was the chief among the publicans, the most hated thieves of the society. And he was rich, of course. And he sought to see Jesus, who he was, and could not for the press, because he was little of stature. And he ran before and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, him, for he was to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him and said unto Zacchaeus, May case come down, for today I must abide at thy house. And he made haste and came down and received him joyfully. And when they, the others that sit on the sidelines watching, saw it, they rejoiced. No, they murmured, saying that he was gone to be guest with a man that is a sinner. Well, how did that work out when Jesus made that blunder? Zacchaeus stood and said unto the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have taken anything from any man by false accusation, I restore him fourfold. And Jesus said unto him, This day is salvation come to this house, for as much as he also is the son of Abraham. Listen, this first point should be clear, shouldn't it? We are to be salt and we are to be light to a lost world without becoming worldly. And if worldliness sets in for a Christian, well, then that's the next verse, okay? So point number two, we need to learn separation from the worldly Christians of the church. Isn't that what it says in verse number 11? But now I have written unto you not to keep company, here's the qualifier, if any man that is called a brother be involved in all of these activities. See? So the Corinthians were weird. 
the Corinthians somehow wouldn't tolerate all of the unsaved people around them, but didn't seem to mind the same behavior going on in their very midst in the church. That didn't seem to bother them. So the list is virtually the same. You have fornicators, covetous, extortioners, and idolaters. But in this list, he adds two things. He adds a railer. Somebody who rails on somebody, that's a reviler. That's a slanderer. That's somebody who's willing to take verbal shots at others, openly defaming their character. And then he mentions a drunkard. Should be obvious. Let me just point out Ephesians 5.18, right? Be not drunk with wine, be filled with the Spirit. The idea is you are filled with another spirit, right? Go to the package store down the street and they call those things spirits, right? They're filled with another spirit. And he says, don't company with those guys. Don't make them your companions. Don't be friends with, don't fellowship with, properly used air quotes, Christians, if a man be called a brother that continually behave that way. I am not saying we look down our nose at somebody who made a mistake. Absolutely not. We're talking about people who have chosen to habitually live their lives in the midst of these lifestyles. And just to clarify exactly what he means by don't company with, he says, yeah, don't even eat with them. Now, when you say no not to eat, what exactly does that mean? I mean, I happened to go to Wendy's and there he was. I mean, what am I going to do? No, in the Bible, by the way, the Baptist got this right. Food means fellowship. Fellowship means food, man. Isn't that what Jesus said in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 20? I mean, that's what he said. If you'll, if you'll open the door, I'm standing at the door knocking. If you'll open the door, I'll come in and sup with you. Well, we're going to hang out and have some food. In other words, what he's saying is the idea of eating together. Look, all cultures have this. Sharing a meal means sharing time. It means sharing your life. It means opening up your heart. It means having conversation. It's fellowship. Food is fellowship. That's what he's talking about. And so he's saying, I'm telling you, don't have fellowship with such people. And so you might ask the question, why the difference? I mean, why do we have seemingly different standards for saved people and for lost people? Well, I mean, why do you have to ask that question? I mean, why is it exactly that you can tolerate lost people in these categories, but you can't tolerate saved people in these categories? Doesn't that seem unloving? Well, I want you to consider some things. First off, friends, you ought to expect... And this is really deep. You ready? You should expect lost people to act like lost people. I mean, what do you expect them to act like? That's all they know. If the Holy Spirit of God does not live inside of their heart and soul, if He is not controlling their life, if they have no connection whatsoever to the supernatural deliverance that Jesus offers, all that's left is their flesh. That's all that's left. And some have a more refined version of such, and we enjoy talking to them more than we enjoy the others, maybe. But they're all the same. We were all the same at one point in our lives, right? Well, similarly, you should also, therefore, expect 
saved people to behave like saved people. Amen? In other words, we ought to know better. It is frustrating sometimes when you come into a church. It does seem like on occasion that church people can find themselves behaving worse than lost people. And I'm not just talking about a vile sin like we read about in this chapter. I just mean that sometimes Christian people don't even know how to be friends. Like, oh, you blew it. I'm never talking to you again. No, that's extreme. That's extreme. But at the same time, you have to be careful. And you need to understand that there are a different set of expectations now, right? And so once a truly saved person makes the decision that they are going to forego holiness, understand that person is not your ministry target. Your ministry target is the lost world. These people already know better. They're just rebellious. They're just rebellious. And as we see in this passage, just leave them to God. Oh, and Satan. Remember the principle of Amos chapter 3? Can two walk together except they be agreed? So if we're not agreed in holiness, well, tough time walking together, right? So there's going to be a dual application to this. So letter A is the corporate separation, and that's cleansing your fellowship. This actually is the specific context of 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And so what we're dealing with here is this issue that we spoke of the last two weeks of church discipline. Now, I think you all probably understand by now that actually invoking public church discipline is a very difficult thing to do, especially these days, right? I mean, just imagine if a church really followed this prescription to the letter. I mean, how many people are sticking around after we get to covetous? I mean, really? <laughs> I mean, this is a tough line to hold because we all, face it, are wicked. Everybody's involved in something, right? So where do you draw the line? I mean, you've got to draw a line somewhere, right? And everybody draws it a little bit different, I guess. Most churches today will draw the no-line line. In other words, it's just such an uncomfortable thing to talk about. Let's just not do it ever, 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 ever. No matter what's going on, no matter what's happening, no matter what's going on in people's lives and hearts and any of that stuff, just it's uncomfortable to talk about. Let's just forget about it. Personally, I've only been involved in exercising church discipline only when the sin is of a public nature and works to actively and openly divide the unity of the church. Now, any of the sins listed in this list can potentially work to actively divide the unity of a church. They don't necessarily have to, but they could potentially as, as a result. So the thing that you need to understand is this, regardless of how you apply it these days, if you apply it, the backlash is going to be awful. It's just going to be miserable. And you deal with people, especially in these last days, that are so consumed 
with their version of sin. That once they're pointed out, they will do anything and everything in their power to take down as many people as they possibly can, somehow thinking that they justify themselves by so doing. The more the merrier. That's the way they're living their lives. So what are you supposed to do? That's a miserable situation. Who wants to be a part of such a thing? I think I'd rather just ignore it. Okay, well, you roll the dice. You go ahead. The Lord said deal with it. So the corporate separation is cleansing your fellowship from these evil influences that seek to actively divide because the community is that important. It is. And there's something about purity as a group. But letter B, the personal separation is, well, it's choosing your friends. It's choosing your friends. And really, y'all, this is where we all live, right? Um, one of my favorite all-time verses in all the Bible, young people, seriously, this verse, Psalm 119, 63, open up your Bibles, underline it, highlight it, put a star by it, memorize it, uh, make it a Bible memory verse, Kale, in camp. I don't know. Do something. Psalm 119, 63, I am a companion of all them that fear thee and of them that keep thy precepts. Who are your friends? Your friends should be people that fear the Lord and obey his word. That's who your friends should be. There's a lot of different verses in the scripture that refer to this in different ways. Psalm 119.63 is the standard. That's the place you got to go. Proverbs chapter 13 and verse number 20. He that walketh with wise men shall be wise. So have wise friends, right? But a companion of fools shall be destroyed. You might not be a fool, but your friend might be. Don't be his companion. Don't company with such. You're looking at your own destruction if you do. And all through the scriptures, I began to compile a list. The list got so long, I realized, look, we can't go through it all today. We don't need to. But God seems to have a lot to say all through the Bible about his people avoiding or withdrawing themselves away from certain people. So, for example, we'll do this quickly. Psalm 101, verses 4 through 7. A froward heart shall depart from me. I will not know a wicked person. Whoso privily slandereth his neighbor, him will I cut off. Him that hath an high look and a proud heart will not I suffer. I'm not putting up with that stuff. Mine eyes shall be upon the faithful of the land, that they may dwell with me. That's who I'm hanging with, right? He that walketh in a perfect way, he shall serve me. He that worketh deceit, He's not dwelling in my house. He that telleth lies, he's not hanging around me very long. Why? Because I'm leaving. I'm leaving. I'm not putting up with it. Deceitful, lying, proud, slandering wickedness. Not having it. 2 Thessalonians, you want a New Testament reference? Chapter 3 and verse 6. We looked at this before. Now we command you. We don't just suggest it. It's not just an idea for those who are super spiritual. This is a commandment. We command you, brethren, now we know the audience, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw yourselves from every brother that walketh disorderly, and not after the tradition which he received of us. Jump down to verse 11. For we hear that there are some which walk among you disorderly. Here's the category. Working not at all, but are busybodies. So they're not involved. They're not working, not helping in ministry. They're not getting things done. All they're doing is criticizing. They're gossiping. 
They're busybodies. They stick their nose in everybody else's business, but they're not really involved in helping anything. He's like, look, stay away from those guys. Verse 14, and if any man obey not our word by this epistle, note that man and have no company with him. Why? That he may be ashamed. And part of the reason why church discipline doesn't work as effectively as it should work is because there's just this plethora of Christians and churches out there that when a person is rightly put out from a fellowship, he can just go down the street and somebody else will just embrace him and love him and take him in immediately. And that church down the street must think that they're having a revival because look at all the people God brought us. But if the Christian church worldwide would obey this principle that a person who is put out finds no place for rest, he can become ashamed and the Lord can work in his heart that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. That's how it's supposed to work. But in this last days that we live in, man, I mean... There's a port in every storm. Everybody's got a place they can go. 2 Timothy chapter 3, 1 through 5. I mean, listen, we can look at this all day long and all this long list of things. Go down to verse 5. In the last days, all this stuff's going to be going on. But notice what it is about these people. They have a form of godliness, but they deny the power thereof. We're not just talking about lost people who have all the, you know, the disobedient and all these different things that they do. We're talking about people who would be called a brother. Those are the ones you're supposed to turn away from. There's a lot of examples. The Lord's pretty insistent about this point, isn't he? He makes it pretty clear. So, in your life as an individual, in your walk with the Lord, you're going to be presented with different challenges. And so this is going to go quickly, but I want you to see this, so I put it in your notes. There are three levels of separation and they come in order. If you've lived any time and walked with the Lord for any number of years, you know that this is true, and you know that they come in this order. The first is separation from the world. Separation from the world and its sinful influences. Everybody who's newly saved knows this. If you were saved as a young adult or older, if you were a small child, maybe it's harder to discern. But if you were saved as a young adult or older and you lived long enough as a lost guy to have lost friends and bad behavior, I had that, <laughs> and then you got saved, the immediate reaction is, done with that. God gave me a new life. Man, I get the do-over. This is so awesome. I can't wait. I love God. I love his people. I love his word. I want to do what's right. I don't even want to. I don't even have a taste for that junk anymore. Separation from the world is the number one sign that you will see as a mark of true salvation. Brand new Christians get being separated from the world. And when a person says that they're saved and refuses to separate from the world, listen, it's not my job to tell you if you're saved or not, but I'm skeptical. I'm skeptical. I mean, wouldn't you be? How is it possible Right, that he's taken your feet out of the miry clay and set it on a solid rock and gave you new life, rescued you from the flaming pits of hell and gave you glory for free. And you're like, yeah, I'm just going to hang around with my buds. Really? No, separation from the world, step number one. Step number two, separation unto the gospel. Paul said in Romans chapter one that I am separated unto the gospel of Christ. So you're pulled away from whatever the main focus of your life used to be, making money or whatever the case might be, 
And the main focus of your life now is I am fully given for this thing, getting the gospel to people. So a person can be saved just a little bit and they begin to learn some stuff and they begin to realize, hey, I need to tell my friends about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And a new believer, by the way, has more lost friends than an old believer and is a prime target for some effective evangelism. Listen, you're separated from the world personally and you're separated unto the gospel. That's the next thing that comes in your life. But after time, you need to learn to be separated from carnal Christians. And this, without question, is the hardest. The first one's not hard at all. You're so excited about your new life. The second one's not hard at all. If you're excited about your new life, you want to tell somebody, right? Third one's a tough one. You live your life having loved dear brothers and sisters in Christ, having prayed with them, having served with them, having won people to the Lord with them, have done discipleship with them. You have served in ministries together. You have history together. You have been friends. You have been bros. You have been together. And then something happens and they say, I'm done. I'm out. I'm going back. I'm doing this. And they start living this sinful, leaven-filled life in the world. And you've got to make up your mind that you're not going to live that way and you're going to obey the Scriptures and you hate to let them go. And this is hard for a believer. It requires a higher level of maturity. But if it hasn't yet come to you, friend, it will be coming. It will be coming because there are no shortage of carnal Christians. There are no shortage. So the question you ought to ask yourself is where exactly are you in that process of these three levels of separation? So who should your true friends be? Well, that's the next thing in your notes. True biblical fellowship should be based on, of course, number one, the gospel, right? That's Philippians chapter one and verse number five. The fellowship should come from the gospel. The second thing is from God's spirit. That's Philippians chapter two. So as you serve the Lord sharing the gospel together with other spirit-filled believers, right, then you're gonna encompass Point number three, and that's Jesus' sufferings, Philippians 3.10, the fellowship of his sufferings. The idea is this, who should your friends be? They should be spirit-filled believers who are involved in ministry who are willing to sacrifice for it. If you are a person who is a spirit-filled believer, if you are involved in ministry, and if you are willing to sacrifice for it and suffer as a result of your stand for truth, and you find other people who are doing that too, it ain't hard being friends with that guy. And you know what? It doesn't even matter if you're uh, you know, personality types match because you're in the mission together. And people in church, you will find people that otherwise you would have nothing in common with. Otherwise, you would never be friends with these people. You're tight because you're doing the mission together. You love each other because you have fellowship in the gospel, because you have fellowship of his sufferings because of the gospel, because he, just like you, is surrendered to the lordship of Jesus Christ regardless of how it plays out in the details. These are the kind of people that you want to spend your time with. These are the friends that you will keep for a lifetime. But that's not what we always see. God's people, I've said this a lot. I probably should think of another way to say it, to keep it fresh. We're just weird. I mean, here's how it works too frequently with people, and it's sad, really. Again, we're talking about if any man be called a brother. So this is our... I'm, again, I'm not judging you, but the appropriate use of air quotes, Christian people find themselves without any real friends in church. 
Why is that? Well, probably because they're not doing any of these things where you make true biblical fellowship. They're not involved in these activities to make the right friends over the right issues. So as a result, what do they do? They just complain about it. And then they go on and keep but misery life's company. So they find other people who are mad and they make the wrong friends with the wrong people for the wrong reasons. Then you have people who don't separate from worldly Christians because, well, we've spent a lot of time together in our past and, I mean, he's my friend. I love him. I care for him. I mean, I like him as people. And so what happens is they just kind of wink at their sinful behavior and they put up with the sinful behavior kind of like, yeah, you know, he's my bro. I mean, what am I supposed to do? Well, I mean, maybe you could be biblical. You could try that. And so these people, they still go to church and, They know some doctrine, but because they're not involved or connected, they become bitter Pharisees. And they take the knowledge that they have, this thing that is called the sword of the Spirit, and they use that sword to slay people, not to heal them, not to heal them. And with their legalistic judgment and their scrutiny that's misapplied, Jesus said of such people, woe unto them. Woe unto them. So not following this prescription properly, well, that's going to lead to other problems. And this is our last point, and it really won't take long. Point number three, separation from judgment that belongs to God. And this is verses 12 and 13. There are different judgments that are assigned to different groups. That actually is fairly profound. I will say it again. In the Bible, and you will see more of this next week when we come back in chapter 6. In the Bible, there are different judgments that are assigned to different groups. And we see two of them right here in front of us. Point number one, don't judge the unsaved. That's not your job. That's God's job. Paul is saying in verse number 12, why do I have to judge lost people? Why do I have to be the one who has to be involved in judging lost people? Remember, lost people behave like lost people. That's what they do. Don't judge them. Reach them. Love them. Bring the gospel to them. Care for them. Show them what they don't know what you didn't once know, but somebody loved you enough to show you. Don't judge lost people. Don't judge the unsaved. Number two, the church is to judge its own matters. Again, this will be discussed next week. So, in the context of the fellowship of the community, right, if a person is damaging the church community's purity, right, 1 Corinthians 5, He or she must be put out. That judgment of being put out of the fellowship is given to the church and its leaders. That's who it's given to. It says, do not ye judge them that are within, verse 12. Verse 13, therefore put away from yourselves, group, that wicked person. 
when it gets that bad, God gives to his bride the unique ability to make the judgment. And Paul emphasizes, yeah, God has some judgment that belongs to him, and we need to watch out for that one. But the church has judgment that's given to her, and that's to judge her own matters. Keep the family business family. Again, we'll, we'll discuss this more next week. And number three, those removed from the church, those that have been judged by the church, those that have been disciplined out of the church, those removed from the church will be judged by God, right? So once a person is disciplined out, they are to be treated like lost people. That's what the Bible says. You treat them as though they never actually were saved. Were they or weren't they? That's not our job. It doesn't matter. They've behaved like lost people. The church casts a judgment that they are to be treated like lost people. Therefore, point number three is refer back to point number one. Refer back to point number one. They're behaving and to be treated officially as lost people. And by the way, the judgment of lost people is not delegated to us. It's given to God alone. It says in verse 13, But them that are without, without the body of the church, they're outside of the community of the fellowship, them that are without, God judgeth. That's a promise. That's a promise. You know how he does that? Well, we already talked about it in verse number 5, that they're delivered unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. God is going to take care of that. So you know what that means? Even with all the evil, backlash, gossip, lies propagated and satanic attacks hurled at the church from those that are removed, once they're out, they're out. And God promises that he will judge them. You say, is there any road for restoration? Of course there is. Humble yourself, admit your fault, confess your sins, repent of such things, and since you committed them publicly and openly before the entire body, you will confess and repent of them publicly and openly before the entire body. When a person does this, and it happens, it's rare these days. When a person does that, we will immediately love them and welcome them back in the fellowship. Of course. It's never over till it's over. You're never done until you're done breathing. And as long as you're breathing, you got a chance. You got time. What are you going to do? God promises He will judge them. That is a good reminder when you are tempted to want to take matters into your own hands. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I might. No, I will repay. So we need to keep the balance. Love the sinner, hate the sin, right? Expect holiness from true born-again believers. Keep yourselves pure. As for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. I can't really say for you. And let God do his job. Oh, and you do yours. Let God do his job and you do yours. And you know what we end up with? Purity that honors the Lord. That's what we end up with. 
I don't know where you find yourself in this mix, but I want to give you the chance to respond. So let's bow our heads and pray.